Wealth has always been a very subjective thing. How rich you are is always the result of a direct comparison of how rich the people around you are. As the universal quality of life increases around the globe, so do the definitions of what wealth and poverty are. A thousand dollars today would be a nice chunk of change, but in 1900, suddenly you could afford to live in a nice house. Going back even further, way further, you could be the most powerful and wealthy magician in a tribe of hunter-gatherer humans with just a set of kitchen knives, a ballpoint pin, and some Tylenol. Separating wealth from its historical context is nearly an impossible task, but some people still try. Historians and biographers will often use terms like adjusting for inflation or in today's money to do so. I don't envy their task, but they tend to do a good job of showing how wealthy historical people were in our modern terms. But there's one man from history who was so incredibly prosperous that experts cannot even begin to compare it to today's numbers. Some historians put a number on his wealth in the trillions, and most describe his wealth as incalculable in modern terms. His name was Mansa Musa Kieta, the emperor of the West African Mali Empire, and he was the richest man to ever live, and it's not even close. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium, episode 13, Riches Beyond Measure. In the 1280s AD, as Europe was neck deep in the Dark Ages, West Africa was thriving. The Empire of Mali was expanding into much of Sub-Saharan Africa. It was into this budding prosperity that Musa Kieta was born. He was the son of a minor oligarch, and was given the best education that his parents could find from the new Muslim universities. He rose through the ranks, and his wits and charm were noted among some of the most prominent men in the entire empire. The current emperor, also known as a Mansa or Sultan of Mali, was Mansa Abu Bakari. Abu Bakari was a dreamer. He was in control of one of the most successful empires in the world in that period, but he yearned for something more. Part of the sprawling Mali empire was located along Africa's western coast. Like millions of humans before him, the Emperor of Mali would gaze at the seemingly infinite blue expanse and wonder what could possibly lie beyond it. He became obsessed with what we would later call the Atlantic Ocean and how to traverse it. He funded massive shipbuilding efforts to create a fleet to potentially cross the ocean. He sent that fleet out, telling them to return after they found what was beyond the ocean. The ships left, and months later, only one ship returned. The captain of that ship told of a massive river in the ocean that swept the other ships away. His ship alone escaped. His story sounds like something from an ancient myth, but there may be a hint of truth to it. There are only a few rivers large enough to cause freshwater currents miles offshore. One of them is the Amazon. Now, we don't know if these ships actually got to South America, and we can assume that Mansa Abu Bakari didn't know that those river currents meant they were close. But it only enticed him further. He furnished another fleet and planned another voyage to cross the Atlantic, this time with he himself 
leading the expedition. However, Mansa Abu Bakari did not have any children, but rules for royal lines of succession were much less strict in Africa than they were in Europe. It was far from a meritocracy, but Mali nobility were less reliant on blood and more reliant on skill. So before the Mansa left on his voyage in 1311 AD, he got to choose who would rule Mali in his absence, and he chose Musa Kieta. Musa Kieta became Mansa Musa Kieta, and he watched the ex-emperor board the flagship and leave port, searching for something beyond the horizon. Abu Bakari and his fleet were never seen again. We'll never know if Abu Bakari landed in the New World nearly 200 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but we can imagine it must have been pretty hard for Musa at first, with him and his subjects thinking the old emperor would return as a hero from his voyage any day now. But he never did, and Mansa slowly began implementing his new agenda. And it worked. Mansa Musa inherited an empire on the verge of greatness. All it needed was a bit more centralization to seal the deal. Three resources made the Mali Empire tick. Copper, salt, and gold. Musa made the internal trade of gold illegal, and every gold mine was now imperial property. Additionally, every imported and exported ounce of salt, copper, and gold was taxed by the government. Using these funds, the Mansa formed a massive military of full-time fighters. This was rare in the region, as most wars were fought with conglomerations of tribal warriors that just answered the call to battle. But Mansa Musa's army had the advantage of training year-round. Their job was to be soldiers. Using a complex riverboat transit system, Musa could deploy his entire army to anywhere in his empire within weeks. The citizens, and especially the traders, were angered at the new government control, but found that the empire was actually a much more open and safe place after Musa's agenda had been implemented. So, they dealt with it. Besides maintaining an effective military, Mansa Musa used his wealth from the gold mines to create many building projects, including mosques, universities, and libraries. Historians are at odds whether Musa was born into a Muslim family or if he was a convert later in life, but it's no doubt that religion was of crucial importance in his life. Musa never forced his religion on his subjects, though. He never made Islam the state religion of the Mali Empire. But he helped spread Islam tremendously by observing Islamic holidays and turning Ramadan into a national time of celebration. Now, one of the five pillars of Islam is the Hajj, the promise that you will go on a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once during your lifetime. Twelve years into his reign, in 1324, the devout Muslim Mansa Musa decided to take the massive undertaking of going on a pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, 3,000 miles away. Now, it's easy to think, yeah, Mansa Musa seems pretty wealthy, but the details of this pilgrimage will give you an idea of just how inconceivably wealthy he actually was. Mansa Musa's caravan for the pilgrimage consisted of 60,000 people. 12,000 of them were slaves that each carried gold bars. 
The Mansa provided all the food and necessities for the procession, including food for the animals, which included 80 camels that carried up to 300 pounds of gold dust on each of their backs. All of his servants were shrouded in gold cloaks and all carried solid gold scepters. After crossing through the harsh sands of the Sahara, Mansa Musa and his massive caravan arrived in Egyptian territory. Outside of Cairo, the capital of Egypt, beggars marveled at the unfathomable display of wealth. Mansa Musa decided to give gold to the poor wherever he went. He and his procession stopped at mosques to worship, and their wealth brought about massive crowds. But eventually, he reached the destination of Mecca. He not only worshipped and paid tribute to his faith, but he also recruited hundreds of theologians, artists, engineers, and architects to return with him to Mali. With the amount of wealth that he displayed, it probably wasn't a hard sell. On his way back from his pilgrimage, he passed through Cairo again, only to discover that all of his generosity had crashed the local gold market in Egypt. The influx of gold had destroyed the economy. The Sultan of Cairo was incredibly upset. We know not whether Musa was just acting out of his generosity and giving gold to the poor throughout Egypt, or if he was keen enough that it was an intentional ploy to crash Egypt's markets, as they were one of the biggest trade competitors for Mali. Regardless, Mansa Musa bought back much of his gold on the way back to Egypt to try to rectify the Egyptian market. This was the only time in history that one single man directly controlled the price of gold on several continents. Upon returning to his empire, Mansa Musa put the scholars and architects he brought back with him to good use. He built hundreds of mosques and massive Muslim seminaries called madrasas throughout the empire. The largest of them all was the great Jingaraber Mosque in Mali's capital of Timbuktu, which still stands today. In addition, Mansa Musa built the sprawling University of Sankore with a gargantuan library that held over one million manuscripts, larger than even the legendary Library of Alexandria. Mansa Musa's pilgrimage to Mecca and the hundreds of scholars and intellectuals he brought back with him put Mali on the map. Literally, cartographers actually began making their maps bigger to include the empire of gold beyond the sands of the Sahara. As a result of Mansa Musa's rule, Africa and the Mali Empire became a thriving cultural, religious, and economic center. If you ask people who they think the richest person of all time was, I doubt many would know it was Mansa Musa. And I think race and religion may play a part. Mansa Musa's obscurity can't be entirely blamed on the fact that he was an African and a Muslim, but it would be foolish to say that that doesn't play some part. Mansa Musa is a prime example of how history can be focused on Judeo-Christian Eurocentrism. We do ourselves a disservice if we do not look critically at the lens that history is shown to us through, and the stories we are told, or in this case, sometimes the stories we are not. Mansa Musa was the richest man in history, but we don't know how he died. Maybe it was in his sleep, betrayed by a close friend, illness, a blaze of glory, but we do know that he did die, just like everyone else. 
the inevitable end that binds us all together, no matter how much wealth we acquire along the way. As an old proverb says, at the end of the game, the king and the pawn both return to the same box. Historium is a history podcast with new episodes coming out every other Wednesday. If you like what you heard here, rate the show on iTunes. That's the best way for the podcast to gain new listeners. Additionally, you can like Historium on Facebook, and now Historium is on Twitter. If you like historical photos with 140-character commentaries, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. That is at underscore Historium. As always, thanks for listening.